Such a pleasure to be here today to talk about encouraging education, entrepreneurship, and innovation. As Charles said, I'm Carrie McDonald. I'm a senior fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education, the country's oldest libertarian think tank, founded in 1946. I'm also an education policy fellow at State Policy Network and the author of the book, Unschooled, Raising Curious, Well-Educated Children Outside the Conventional Classroom that came out in 2019, but had quite a bit of renewed interest uh, in the spring of 2020 as so many families found themselves suddenly living and learning at home with their children. Uh, and I'm joined today, again, as Charles said, uh, with Amar Kumar, who's the founder of the Boston-based startup, KaiPod Learning, which is a national microschooling network, fast growing, uh, as well as Dr. Danilo Petranovic, who runs the Abigail Adams Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts, as providing supplemental uh, humanistic education for the Harvard community. And I'll get more into uh, their backgrounds and their bios in just a moment, and we'll have sort of a back and forth with some questions and answers from them. But I thought I would just sort of start by setting the stage of sort of what's happened in education over the past two and a half years. And you know, there's a lot that we could be upset about right now and kind of reflecting on the disruption caused by the COVID response in terms of K-12 education. We have NAEP scores that have come out that show um, lack of proficiency and real gaps in learning. We have a rising youth mental health crisis. Uh, we have curriculum battles in, in classrooms across the country. So there's a lot that we could dwell on, a lot of negative. But I think there's really a lot of positive, and I'm really optimistic. And one of the reasons I'm optimistic is because what I've seen happen over the course of the past couple of years is sort of the three E's of education transformation, empowerment, exit, and entrepreneurship. So in terms of empowerment, back in the spring of 2020, when everyone again was living and learning alongside their children, parents were re-empowered to take back control of their children's education from government bureaucrats and really get a close-up look at what was happening in their children's classrooms. What were their kids learning or what were they not learning? And it was truly eye-opening. It was really a defining moment from the parents I've talked to and then certainly the trends we've seen across the country. And from that time of a kind of parent empowerment, um, parents again reclaiming control of their children's education, it shifted into exit. And there's been a breathtaking exit from government-run schools over the past two and a half years. New data out show, for example, that between the spring of 2021 and the spring of 2022, there were four million students who left government-run schools in the US since the beginning of the COVID response, that number is about 7 million. So a dramatic drop in the uh, attendance in district schools, many of those people exiting for private schools, charter schools, homeschooling, microschooling. Uh, and it's been exciting to sort of see what's come from that. And so if we think again back to 2020 as parents were re-empowered and beginning this process of exit, what were they doing? Well, many of them started to create what were called pandemic pods, which were often these sort of spontaneous co-learning communities, very often parent-driven, uh, multi-age, mixed-age groups, small kind of one-room schoolhouse experiences. And this was very much 
what was sort of representative of the microschooling movement. Uh, and that, that had been gaining traction pre-2020. I wrote about it in my unschooled book. You may know some of the kind of national microschool networks that predated COVID places like Prenda Learning Pods or Acton Academy or Wildflower Montessori School, really just gravitating towards this idea of small, mixed-age learning communities that were reminiscent of kind of the one-room schoolhouse. And so parents were discovering that throughout the, the 2020 to 2021 academic year in, in forming these pandemic pods. And many of them then decided that they liked that so much that they wanted to continue to expand that even after schools reopened for full-time in-person learning. And that's where we really get to see uh, sort of the launch of these micro-school networks. And obviously, KiPod was, was started kind of as part of that too. Uh, and, and just seeing this kind of parent and educator-driven entrepreneurship. And I'll give you a few examples, and then certainly Amar will talk about KiPod and, and kind of a scalable uh, microschool network. But in, in terms of some of the, the educators and parents that I've talked to and what they've done in, in, in creating these microschool programs, uh, one example is a mom of four named Jill Perez, who is in New Jersey. She uh, was a longtime public school teacher for about 20 years, more recently shifted into higher education, being a, a, a student teacher supervisor for teachers in training at Rutgers University and Seton Hall University. And when COVID hit, she was uh, really um, rejecting the COVID policies that were happening in her children's schools. So she pulled her kids out and with other parents formed a pandemic pod uh, where they got together and kind of shared resources and shared instruction and curriculum. That was so successful and parents really loved it so much that they urged her to create something more established, more formal. So in the fall of 2021, she opened Tranquil Teachings Learning Center as a microschool in New Jersey, and she had about 50 kids. Uh, and that's just a perfect example of the kind of this parent ingenuity and entrepreneurial energy towards creating an alternative, sort of criticizing by creating. And she was able to recruit uh, many of her teachers from the New York City public schools who were dissatisfied with COVID policies there and really wanted something different. Uh, and her program continues to flourish today. Kids are recognized as homeschoolers to attend, but they can attend part-time or full-time uh, up to five days a week as a full-time schooling alternative for a fraction of the cost of a traditional private school. Another example, I just wrote about this um, education entrepreneur in my Forbes column last week, uh, Felicia Ratre in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Again, another long-time public school teacher who discovered during the remote learning process that her nephew, who she has custody of, uh, was completely behind in learning and, and was really, she was really shocked at sort of the, the lack of academic rigor that she was seeing in her, in her nephew's classroom. And so she decided to pull him out and then ultimately create a microschool as well. She now has about 20 kids, most low income uh, in Fort Lauderdale. They attend her microschool, again, part-time or full-time on the Florida's tax credit scholarship program. So it's tuition free for many of them. 
And then one sort of final example before we get into uh, a little bit more about what you'll hear today is uh, a, the person I wrote about in my Forbes column this week, uh, or the people, which are Noah, who are Noah and Molly Stevenson in Wichita, Kansas. Um, who decided to create a Prenda-affiliated pod. Remember I said Prenda was one of the kind of pre-2020 microschool networks. Uh, so they focus on neurodiverse children, children who are on the autism spectrum, who have dyslexia or ADHD, other kinds of special learning needs. And they were able to create a microschool with about 35 kids um, through a public-private partnership through the state of Kansas that enables those kids to also attend their microschool tuition-free. So it's exciting to see sort of from this disruption a lot of energy and enthusiasm for alternatives and innovation and entrepreneurship. And I think that that's the real message I take away from a lot of um, what's occurred over the past couple of years is the sense of creating, uh, of criticizing through creation. I think of the Roman philosopher Cicero who said, I criticize by creation, not by finding fault. And there is this sense of, you know, we could do, we can focus on voice and exit. We can um, certainly share our thoughts and opinions about what's happening in our culture, but we can really make change by creating something new and creating something different. And that's what's been really exciting for me to see is that rather than sort of fighting an entrenched system, Let's build something different and better. And it's sort of, if you think about uh, entrepreneurs and, and individuals, they could have spent a lot of time fighting the entrenched taxi industry uh, and fighting the bureaucracy of that, or they could go out and build something new and better. And thankfully, rideshare apps did the latter. And I think the same uh, sort of energy, again, and momentum we're seeing with these education alternatives and innovation, um, that rather than fighting that, that entrenched system, let's criticize by creating. And I think in the end, and I'll, and I'll turn it over to Amar in a moment, but I think in the end, this process of encouraging sort of a dynamic free market in education with these decentralized solutions that continue to encourage parents to exit uh, the government-run system will actually take the temperature down. So I would respectfully disagree, I suppose, with Jason in saying instead of sort of elevating the war, uh, let's just take the temperature down by creating so many more options for more families so that we have that choice and that variety in education the same way we have in all other areas of our lives. And I, I often use the example of grocery stores. You know, if we had uh, government-run grocery stores that were assigned to us by zip code, that were run by local grocery boards where we were told sort of what to eat and what we weren't able to eat and have certain dietary uh, um, propaganda that we were fed, you know, this would be uh, a huge conflict, right? But essentially that's what we have in education. And so if we could sort of move toward a more decentralized role, take down that temperature, have less, less government control over our lives and encourage this kind of vibrant, flourishing free market of choices that will enable people to make decisions based on their own personal preferences and values, uh, we will find, I think, that we live much more peacefully and harmoniously. And that's actually a good, I think, a good segue to, to start talking about some of the work that Amar does, because KaiPod is really neat in that it's a microschool network that 
um, that enables parents to choose the curriculum that their children will be learning, sort of an online curriculum where they can put together all kinds of different online curriculum, and come together in a microschool environment that's facilitated by an adult educator with all kinds of different students. And so it's this perfect blend, I think, of parent autonomy in being able to select whatever curriculum they want, but having that kind of social uh, experience as a microschool. And so I just want to read uh, a little bit of, of Amar's background and then have him talk about KaiPod and then turn it over to Danilo to talk about the Abigail Adams Institute and sort of how this applies to higher education. So Amar is an education entrepreneur, as I mentioned. Uh, he's the founder of KaiPod Learning. He has an MBA from the Harvard Business School, worked as a manager at McKinsey before becoming chief product officer for Pearson's online K-12 division. He's also been a school teacher and a principal at a high-needs rural school in India. So just a real vast uh, experience in education and in entrepreneurship. So Amar, let's start with you maybe talking a little bit about what KaiPod is and why you decided to launch it. Sure. Thank you very much for having me and thank you for that introduction. Um, maybe I'll answer the why I decided to launch it because that'll build into what it is. Um, as Carrie mentioned, I've been in education for a very long time, uh, more than 15 years. Uh, I was a school teacher, I was a school principal, and in those roles, I sort of got to understand the challenge that all school teachers face. And I call it the problem of thirds. So you're facing, you're standing in front of the classroom, you've got a classroom of 30 kids, and you plan a lesson. But that lesson is really gonna really impact that middle third of kids. There's gonna be the left side of that distribution who's gonna have no clue what you're talking about. Because academically, they just need a little more support. And there's the right side of the distribution who is so bored because they're like, I already know all this. I want to do the next thing, but I got to wait for you to catch up. And so as a teacher, I always felt like I was failing two thirds of my class because I just couldn't personalize that learning fast enough. So I left the traditional classroom, the teaching uh, profession, uh, school administration, um, and eventually I found myself at Pearson, which runs one of the largest networks of online schools in the country, in the world. And I eventually became the chief product officer for this division, building the technology and the curriculum for online learning. This is pre-pandemic. And in an online school, students can move at their own pace. They're not waiting for a teacher to teach them. They have the curriculum laid out for them. And if they're doing really well with a the subject, they can go faster. And if they're struggling, they can take the time to get it right before they move on. It's an incredibly personalized path. And over time, we had more than 150,000 kids on this platform. But every single one of them, while they were doing well academically, they were struggling with socialization. And their parents at home were struggling with being the educator support system for that child. Many of them wanted their kids out of the house, right? There was a lot of the things that we all discovered during the pandemic that were true for these online schools before the pandemic. And so when the pandemic started and I saw more and more families discovering these shortfalls with online learning, but also the benefits of self-paced, flexible learning, I think I said, okay, there is a real potential here. There's a real potential to make this online learning plus some sort of in-person component a really viable part of the education system. Now, all of this is on a backdrop of the K-12 system being on a vicious cycle that is going to, I think, eventually lead to um, 
something that resembles where I grew up in India, um, which is the best teachers are leaving the system for other opportunities. Entrepreneurship, um, private roles in ed tech companies, whatever it might be, the best teachers are leaving, which um, causes the school system to pay more to retain the teachers that remain. And so you can see the data on teacher exits, you can see the data on teacher salaries and retention bonuses going up. Now, as school systems pay more for those things, they don't have enough left over for infrastructure, for learning programs, diverse learning needs. And so the parents who are left say, well, now my child is not being served as well anymore. And that spurs an exit. So those parents leave and they look for private, charter, micro school, homeschool options. When every time a parent leaves, what happens? The school's funding goes down even further. When there's less money left over, more teachers leave. And so it ends up in this vicious cycle where the teachers are leaving, the parents are leaving, there's less money left over. So I saw that as the backdrop of what's happening in K-12 education. And as Carrie said, I chose to create. I wanted to create a new alternative, another option for families who are looking to leave, which takes the best of high quality online learning and provides in-person supports. And so that is what KaiPod is. So we run a network of in-person learning centers across the country where any family can join us. They choose the curriculum they want. We're happy to make recommendations based on your family, your learners. You can choose a traditional public standards aligned curriculum. You can choose a Montessori project-based learning curriculum. You can choose a religious curriculum. You can create your own curriculum if that is how you want to be a part of your child's education. And so we start with a family choosing a curriculum and then the child comes to our physical center to work on that content, to get support from a learning coach who is a former classroom teacher, and to be around other kids to get all that social fun experience that you want kids to have. And so that's what we're building and we're finding tons of demand for parents who wanna be more actively involved. They don't want someone else to take care of their child's education. They want to be part of that journey. Yeah, and so I think one of the kind of key components of this panel is really celebrating this diversity of thought and practice in K-12 education um, through creation, through entrepreneurship and innovation. And we're also happy to have Danilo with us who's talking about kind of higher education and encouraging diversity of thought there. Uh, and so let me just read a little bit about Danilo. He is the director of the Abigail Adams Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which provides supplementary humanistic education to the Harvard community as well as other local universities in the area. Previously, he taught political science at Duke University and Yale. Uh, his scholarly expertise is in 19th century European and American political and social thought. You're currently writing a book that is under contract with Yale University Press on nationalism and the North in antebellum America. So Danilo, maybe you could talk a little bit about the origin of the Abigail Adams Institute and what your mission is. You got it. Thank you, Carrie, uh, for that nice segue and the great uh, introduction uh, to the panel as well. Also want to thank Ashley Jacobs for the invitation and then Bonnie Snyder, who's there in the audience. I just saw her who introduced me to Ashley when we uh, uh, attended a um, uh, kind of a Harvard uh, alumni retreat in Nashville, Tennessee this, uh, uh, this June. Uh, visited the Parth, toured the Parthenon together with family and friends, so highly. What's the, oh, okay, I did not know that, yeah, okay. <laughs> Hope it wasn't too bad. So, um, 
Okay, great. Well, I thought yeah, in these opening five minutes, I'll just briefly describe uh, what it is that we are and then um, take, it, take it from there. So uh, our motto is strengthening the university from within. And what are we? Okay, three ways of describing this. One way, we're an academic reform initiative. We are an independent scholarly institute. And then uh, intellectual community incubator for number three. So what is the first one? Um, what's the academic reform initiative all about? So as you probably know and will agree, there are two uh, negative social trends uh, have defined university for the last uh, couple of decades, perhaps more. Um, one, um, despite all its, of course, wonderful uh, successes and uh, especially at uh, research one places like Harvard and uh, and others. One of those is, uh, I guess, goes under the name of wokeness today. It used to be political correctness or groupthink. And I describe it as sort of a kind of artificially constraining the conversations on some topics. So we seek to diversify uh, thought, as it, as it were, um, and offer some supplementary programs that way to Harvard students and professors um, and alumni who come and visit. The second one, even more important or even more um, long, um, uh, a more troublesome trend that we're trying to address is, um, you know, university in some ways has become a victim of its uh, greatest success, especially a research university. There's so much, I mean, Harvard especially is a, what, like $42 billion institution, incredibly prestigious, incredibly powerful, um, research-driven, all the professors are superstars, or most of them in any event. Uh, but one um, negative side of that is they've forgotten uh, the teaching mission or maybe neglected it and uh, the best folks just don't have time to teach these big introductory survey courses that help put it all together for the uh, undergraduate student, right, for the uh, 18, 19 year olds coming in. So that's a big, uh, big, uh, big thing and that, that trend is accelerated. So we highlight it, we try to address it in any way that we can. We work with uh, those uh, faculty who, are, uh, who see the situation in the same way, try to enable them, try to help them to uh, uh, address that concern. And then also in our own way, for those students who are now going through, uh, through college, we try to offer in a piecemeal fashion, uh, fill in some of those gaps. So, you know, big courses and big subjects like, you know, Shakespeare and Plato and Founders, Lincoln, things that I do as well. So, um, so those are, that's why we exist, to address those um, social trends. The second uh, important thing about us is that we're independent. We're a 501c3 not-for-profit, so it's independent governance, you know, organized independently from the university. Harvard alumni mostly uh, engaged on the board, including myself. So what, what does that mean? It allows us a certain flexibility and uh, independence, and that tends to be uh, very helpful, but it also, um, means since we're, again, all part of the university, have some connection to the university, we want to be constructive players in the ecosystem. And then thirdly, what we really, um, what I said we're an intellectual community incubator. Um, I found, you know, even when I went to, when I was at Harvard in 2000, late 90s, 2000, I found it was almost, um, it was hard at first, but then it was very easy. There was so much time for extracurriculars and extra, um, non-academic work, and maybe that's fine, and it can be interesting and, and, and good, but we kind of wanted to, to uh, 
encourage students to spend more time pursuing their intellectual and academic pursuits, even in, an, in, in a setting outside the classroom, where grades are not a factor, where they can ask the big questions, where the imaginations can run a little bit, where they can be unafraid to ask controversial uh, questions and engage in controversial topics. I mean, I think that's how growth happens, especially intellectual growth. So we're trying to create a space for that Again, not that it doesn't exist in places uh, at Harvard, it just tends to be, um, again, it, it could, there's, there's more room for it. So we try to model uh, that sort of thing. I'll pause there, but there's much more to say later on. Yeah, and, and again, just such similar themes of creating these alternatives, creating uh, an ecosystem that encourages and celebrates diverse ideas and practices, and again, criticize by creation. Uh, and that's again, one of the things I'm really excited about with Amar's work with KaiPod is this maximum parental choice and voice. Uh, so maybe, Amar, you could talk a little bit about how KaiPod works to do that. I know we've talked in the past about how parents can choose their curriculum in terms of you know, a really um, faith-based curriculum to a progressive curriculum, everything in between. Um, really, again, that, that celebration of diversity and pluralism. Yeah, yeah, happy to. I think our philosophy on this starts with our belief on the job to be done of a school, right? So if, what, when you're a parent and you enroll your child in a school, what are you looking for that school to do? And I believe there's three broad things um, that generally most parents look for. The first is obviously academics, curriculum, like you want them to learn reading, writing, arithmetic, et cetera. The second is socialization, so social support. So you want them to be around other kids, you want them to learn how to be citizens or members of a classroom and a group of kids. And then the third is custodial care. You want your child to be somewhere in a building that's safe with uh, adults supervising them so that you can pursue a career, you can run your household, whatever it might be. Broadly speaking, we look to schools to do those three things. Um, and right now, if you're in a traditional school system, you get one choice, like this is the school. It's been assigned to you, it will do all three of those jobs for you. And as parents become more empowered, they want choices, they don't want exactly one institution to do all three of those jobs in one way for every child. And so we're disaggregating, we're, we're modularizing all of those pieces. So starting with the first job of curriculum, you, know, you choose the curriculum you want, right? So if you want a faith-based curriculum, absolutely, that is your right as a parent, that is exactly how you should educate your children, and so you can pick that. So that's the first piece of the module. Um, the second, which is socialization. So, you know, you want your child to be around lots of kids, small number of kids, um, kids in your neighborhood, kids from other neighborhoods, whatever you might choose. We're building towards a vision where there is a, a network of these learning centers in every community. So you kind of get to choose where you want your child to be. And, the, the, and then the child also gets to choose who their friends are and, and sort of how they interact with that group. And then the third, the custodial care, um, some parents want their kids in the house zero days a week, right? They want their kids to be elsewhere, so you can choose a full-time plan with us. Some parents actually want their kids at home two, three, four days a week, so they can choose a part-time plan with us. So we're trying to make it very flexible, so you can do KaiPod in an unlimited number of ways. And so we've got, at this point, something like 140 kids in our network across the country, so we're small, first year operating, and there's probably, a there are 140 different 
pathways through KaiPod. Different curriculum, different number of days, different hours per day. And what we're trying to do is scale that flexibility, scale that personalization, so that there's not one corporate network trying to decide how everyone does school. There is a network that's deciding how we embed flexibility all the way down to each pod. And these pods are groups of 10. So if you have a group of 10 that wants to start a little later because traffic's really bad in Atlanta, like our pod there, they do, they start later. And that works better for those families. Where we have pods in Arizona that are much more faith-based, you know, just their activities are align more with that. And that's great because those families chose that. So we can create all these wonderful, diverse pathways where we all coexist and we all learn from each other rather than having one person at the top decide how everyone learns. That's great. So Danilo, the Abigail Adams Institute was created about eight years ago and you have some goals coming up over the next couple of years. Maybe you could talk a little bit about those short-term plans. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you, uh, Carrie. Yeah, the goals are to continue doing what we're doing, or maybe I thought I would give an example of, of, of um, a day in the life of Abigail Adams Institute. So, um, and the other, the other one is we're always looking to find uh, ways to scale, but also without losing our mission and purpose. So we're a very labor-intensive uh, organization, and there's some of that that we'll never be able to get around with. Some of the point is also to remain uh, that so the best way for us to uh, scale would be to see the creation of other similar uh, institutes at other places at other universities or university adjacent uh, institutes. But so um, one of the things so here's an example from uh, yesterday's uh, yesterday's day that I can uh, maybe maybe go through. So uh, we uh, invited um, actually someone this was somewhat unusual. Um, someone from the Brookings Institution uh, who wrote a book on, um, uh, maybe you've seen it, Reeves, a book on boys and men. Uh, maybe, I guess you know, people are nodding, some people are nodding, which is an uh, interesting uh, reflection on uh, yeah, what to do with this crisis of, of boys or, or, or men or manliness, I suppose. And uh, we organized a panel with him and some of our scholars in Harvard University scholars including the famous uh, Harvey Mansfield, uh, Professor Mansfield, who is uh, a government professor and has been there for many, many decades now. So we organized a panel. Uh, a lot of our programming is done at our offices, which again are right next to Harvard, but also at Harvard. So this was uh, done in the government department in one of their uh, very, very nice uh, lectures and auditoriums. Harvard's really wonderful that way. They allow you to uh, you can, as long as you uh, reserve a room uh, in advance uh, through a Harvard affiliate, you have no problem organizing programming there. So we were able to bring in um, uh, different scholars and different perspectives on the question of boys and, and men, a controversial uh, subject, obviously. So um, then a group uh, of graduate students invited the participants over for dinner at their place nearby. They continued a conversation over wine and dinner. Again, we help enable and sponsor some of these things. But I ended up last night organizing a film night, um, uh, again, on a kind of manliness topic. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Point Break, 1991, about surfers and robbers, and uh, uh, it's a bromance of sort, and, and, and uh, good on manliness, and the female gaze, Catherine Bigelow, of course, uh, great director, Hurt Locker. And, Whatnot. So it's one of these movies that you know maybe is controversial in some ways to watch today, but it's very good in raising the big questions. Again, a friendship, 
uh, as I said, manliness, nature of evil, uh, risk, and so on and so forth. So then students stayed up for a couple hours after that discussing the topic. A student usually leads a presentation and then somebody comments and so on and so forth. So, okay, that's one, one example. So we try to hire more people to be, enable us to do more uh, supplementary things of, of this nature that again, don't crowd out some of the classroom work, but, but uh, hopefully add, and again, in an environment outside of grades and outside of grading, and the professor-teacher kind of vertical relationship, um, you know, add some of that di different uh, programming. So, That's great. I'll stop there. So, Amar, what do you think about the future prospects of microschools, learning pods, these sort of innovative alternative schooling models? What does it look like? I think I would go to your framework of empowerment, exit, entrepreneurship. I really like that. Um, I do believe that more and more families will start feeling empowered and acting on that sense of saying, I want a greater voice in my child's education. I think 90-something percent of American families are still in public schools, so they'll start there. They'll agitate at school boards and PTA meetings, et cetera, and my hypothesis is they will not be effective they will not find a sympathetic ear. So those families will then turn to exit and start to look for alternatives. And I think that's where innovation will start, the entrepreneurship pillar. Um, I grew up in India where 60 to 65% of all kids go to private schools. I went to a private school growing up because you just don't go to public schools when you're in India. You just, they're absolutely terrible. They are shells, they're hollowed out shells where teachers don't show up 50% of the time. There's no facilities for bathrooms. There's, you know, just, there's no curriculum. Just forget it, right? You just don't go there. And so when the government stopped listening to families uh, on issues like we want kids to be taught in English, not local languages, when government stopped listening to families on uh, the quality of teachers, those families left. And funding, as you can imagine, changed over time. And so now there is this bustling sector of private education in India which is affordable to anyone. Like effectively anyone with just any disposable income can afford to send their kid to a private school. They're very, very low cost, very affordable. And then of course there's like a very elite sector as well. And so I think something like that is happening here. There's this one way trip that education is on, which is when you stop listening to families and you stop being responsive to their needs, they leave, you lose funding, teachers leave, they leave. You know, it's just that vicious cycle I referred to. We're on this one-way trip, um, and as more and more of these families leave, it will just create opportunity for entrepreneurs, right? Like, I would not have started this company if I didn't see that there were a lot of families looking for alternatives, right? The idea for Kaipod came to me like six years ago, but I didn't think I could build it because there just weren't enough families. But I chose to start building it 18 months ago because I saw that exit happening. And I think more and more people are gonna see that exit happening, create micro schools in their communities, leave the classrooms. I speak to teachers every day who are leaving the classroom because they're just, the job is not sustainable for them. And so they're saying, I need a different way to teach. I still wanna be in education, but not in a classroom. So we say, how about starting a micro school? Some of you may be familiar with the book, The Beautiful Tree by James Tooley that talks about these kind of low cost private schools that are widely accessible in India and Africa and parts of China. 
um, many of which are sort of unregistered private schools, right? They're, they're very much uh, analogous to the micro schools that we have today. They're small um, and affordable and accessible, but often not rec recognized by the government uh, as a registered private school, and yet parents clamor to send their kids there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for parents in India, the recognition by the government is worth nothing. Yeah, they, they want their kids to have the education so that they're, effective, they're uh, successful in life and they can see when that's happening. They don't need the government to put a stamp of approval. The government, in terms of education in India, has zero credibility. And unfortunately, I think that's where we're headed here too. Yeah, well, and, and James Tooley will also say that one of the biggest threats to these private schools uh, in India and elsewhere is government overreach, government regulation. That's certainly a concern here. My latest paper out through State Policy Network looks at ways that we can encourage education entrepreneurship by keeping regulation at bay, by encouraging this flourishing free market of education solutions and, and really uh, adopting an, a deregulatory strategy towards making it easier for entrepreneurs like Amar to open and operate and scale these um, individual microschools or microschool networks. Uh, so Danilo, you are operating uh, on the periphery of Harvard campus. You are providing this kind of supplemental uh, education for the Harvard community. Uh, is anyone else doing this? Are you the sort of only one in the area, or do you have some competitors there? Sure, yes. <clears throat> there, there are competitors, and there are also, I think in the past, uh, uh, even way before us, you, you have various uh, communities, right, whether, um, you know, sort of, I guess you could say re religious communities, you know, Harvard Hillel Center, Harvard Catholic Center, um, um, it's sort of, you know, chaplaincies and, and that, that populate and serve, let's say, the religious needs of the students. Um, then there's all sorts of um, uh, other, maybe let's say, political uh, uh, organizations that try to reach uh, students. But on a kind of independent intellectual level, where we really are concerned with humanistic education, classical liberal education, um, you know, teaching habits of mind and character, that doesn't exist. So it's unique in that way, uh, the Abigail's Adams Institute. So yes, competitors uh, exist for the mind share, for time, for students' time, for their, you know, um, how they're gonna spend the extracurricular time. But I think we're fairly unique in the kind of products, if you wanna put it that way, that we offer. Great.